0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. It's Friday, so that means another horror-themed episode for you. I got a question for you. How many of you ever snuck a look at a medical book with its explicit photos and illustrations of disease or deformities? I know, it half grossed you out and half fascinated you. You didn't want to look, but you had to. Well, that's at the root of horror. You're seduced and reviled simultaneously at times. For today's special horror-themed October podcast, I want to stray a little bit from movies to introduce you to two things. First, to Jesse Merlin, aka Mr. Horror Musical, and to the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh, Scotland. What do these two things have in common? Well, in 2012, Merlin, who had been playing the character of Dr. Hill in Reanimator the Musical in Hollywood, went with the cast and crew to Scotland to partake in the annual festival Fringe. Being an ardent fan of Reanimator the Musical, I naturally followed them to Scotland. That's when Merlin told me about the Surgeons Hall Museum. Let me begin by introducing you to Jesse Merlin and his unique skill set so you can see why he's the perfect person to take us on a tour of Surgeons Hall Museum. What do a reanimated deviant surgeon, cannibalistic serial killer, and a Max Juan inspired Catholic priest all have in common? Well, they're all characters in musical plays inspired by horror films, and they're all played by the classically trained opera singer Jesse Merlin.
0: What becomes of the human brain when vital function cease? Vital function cease!
1: Merlin looks like a caricature of a young and untanned George Hamilton, and has a bass baritone voice perfect for Gilbert and Sullivan. Since that's not what Hollywood's looking for, Merlin had to scare up roles elsewhere.
2: I've just become Mr. Horror Musicals lately. It was Dr. Hill and reanimated the musical, and then I was Hannibal and a bunch of other roles as The Swing in Silence the Musical here in L.A.
1: Recently, he played a comic version of Max von Sydow's Catholic Priest in a Hollywood fringe production called Exorcistic, The Rock Musical Parody Experiment.
2: I was a little scared by making my entrance as the priest with a hip hop number.
0: Don't need show and tells, don't enforce our hotels. You just need a weatherman to tell you which weather storm dwells. Psychokinetic, frenetic, eclectic, diabetic, prophetic, and always sympathetic. It's a home sweet home now. Home we slow down, homes we throw down. Your daughter feeling low down? Don't fret, don't fret now, child. The exorcist. The exorcist. The exorcist
1: in the
2: motherfucking house.
1: This is a guy who began singing opera professionally at 22.
2: I think it's ironic because now that's my selling point, <laughs> that here I am, this highfalutin, snooty, ridiculous opera singer having to wade into the into the entrails of a rock musical and, and not just do hard rock and perform with a four-piece, you know, just really cook and rock band for the first time, but also you know, lay down the beats and, uh, and freestyle a little bit.
1: Let's leave the projectile vomit of Exorcistic behind and move on to the blood splatter of Reanimator the Musical. Merlin plays Dr. Hill in the horror musical based on Stuart Gordon's 80s cult classic. Dr. Hill is a lecherous surgeon who literally loses his head and reanimates from the dead.
2: There's a decapitation on stage, then I have a, a puppetry rig where I'm carrying my own decapitated head around while singing.
0: I love you, and I love you still.
1: good head on his shoulders and another in the prop room, Merlin saw an opportunity to exploit something he's always loved to do.
2: I discovered early on that playing a villain is about the most fun you can have as an actor. When I got to reanimate reanimator, for example, playing a decapitated zombie pervert was just like the role I feel I was born to
1: play. That brings us to horror musical number three. Merlin got to understudy and eventually play the role of Hannibal Lecter in Silence the musical.
0: I'd like to tell her I don't care, but something in her eyes. I'd like to tell her life's not fair, but right above her thighs. If I could help her solve this case, perhaps they'd let me leave this place for one that has a bit more space. I want to see a tree. Lonely, lonely lunatic. I'm charming, but I'm also sick. I need an audience for my shtick. Perhaps it could be she. If I could smell her cunt, if she would grant my simple little wish I could illuminate this dungeon with but one small whiff of tuna fish, I'd give her what she wants if I could smell her cunt.
2: I've kind of thought about what about opera and particularly Gilbert and Sullivan, which is. You know, a big part of my background too leads me to horror. I think it's a grounding in over the top archetypal stock characters, extreme characters. I think horror is a place where actors who are offbeat, who don't look like models, who don't look like an obvious, easily marketed character type, someone who's a little average or unusual looking or um, has an unusual talent, will find a place in horror where maybe nowhere else really has a place for you.
1: So that's Jesse Merlin. And one summer day in 2012, he decided to take me on a tour of the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Scotland.
2: And appropriately enough, here on Hill Square, on Hill Place, is the Royal uh, Surgeon's Hall, the Royal College of Surgeons at Edinburgh University, which is uh, one of the first surgery universities in the world. Uh, a really remarkable museum that's one of the very few pathology collections open to the public. And the first place I came uh, when I got here to perform reanimated the musical. So um, it's, uh, it feels like Dr. Hill's uh, classroom and uh, it feels like Hannibal Lecter's kitchen. Uh, and that's the next role I'm playing in the Silence of the Lambs musical. So uh, there seems to be a theme. I'm starting to think I should have gone to med school. I play nothing but evil doctors. So I hope you enjoy it. This is a beautiful place.
1: But before we go inside, let me take a little side trip to the offices of Chris Henry, who was Director of Heritage at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. This cheery man knew everything you ever wanted to know about the museum. So let me digress from Jesse's tour for a few minutes to get some background on the museum and what it does.
3: Well, Surgeon Hall Museum is really an extension of Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, and it's a museum which is built in uh, 1832 to display uh, human specimens which originally held for teaching purposes but it encompasses much more than that, it encompasses scientific instruments, art and dentistry. So it's a sort of wide-ranging surgically based uh, museum which uh, welcomes the general public as well as medical specialists.
1: And explain a little bit about how the museum is kind of divided up and what kind of things people would find here.
3: Yeah, well, it's, it's, an, it's an odd place. It's uh, it's linked, really, the main building, which is called the Playfair Hall, named after the architect William Playfair, is, as I said, built was built in 1832. And that was originally designed in 1832 as a museum that held the medical specimens. So for the main part, within that area, you have an upper and lower floor, the lower floor is mainly open to the public and that shows uh, specimens can range from anything from a brain in a a jar to um, art by the famous Napoleonic artist uh, Charles Bell. Um, That part follows themes um, normally based around um, anatomy or disease Particular kind of pathology. And then um, next to it, joined by a small staircase, is what's called the History of Surgery Museum, which really takes you from the start of the incorporation of arbor surgeons in 1505 right up to the present day and talks about surgical techniques, really more about the technology, but it covers things like ophthalmic surgery, which is surgery of the eyes, it talks about plastic surgery. And we also deal with things like uh, cardiac and uh, we have our special exhibitions in that area. And the one at the moment is about the famous uh, surgeon Joseph Lister. Uh, But there's also, joining that, uh, a separate museum really, which is a small museum based around uh, dental surgery. The key thing about that is that the dental collection was started by a gentleman called John Menzies Campbell, Mingus Campbell as they say in Scotland. And he was an avid collector of all things dental. So you've got everything from um, famous paintings of um, people like... Bartolome like Ruspini, who was a uh, a London dentist and two things that we used to, uh, elevators and things you used to pull teeth out, drills, all those things that everybody wants to run a mile from normally. But generally, when it's behind a, a glass front, um, then you're right, you're much safer to look at it. Almost all the paintings that we have depict some form of removal of a tooth with lots of blood and uh, grimacing. And I think, you know, in the In the early period certainly from the sort of 16th and 17th century it was a traumatic experience for anybody but then i suppose you balanced the the pain of your toothache against what the dentist could do for you
1: now the use for the museum or for the specimens that are here seems pretty obvious for like for students but for the general public and Mm. people coming in why do you think it's important to have exhibits like these for people to come see well,
3: first of all, it's really all about understanding the human body. Very few people see what's inside themselves um, over their lifetime. You you might cut yourself and see a bone or something like that. But you generally don't have an idea. You can look at as many books as you like to see human anatomy, and you can look, look at computers, but there's nothing like actually seeing the real thing, even though it's preserved in a jar and it lost its colour. I mean, it's a strange thing because, on the one hand, there is a tendency to be voyeuristic about these things but on the other hand there's an absolutely un, undeniable fascination about the human body and we find that people coming in here even if they're in, in part squeamish very soon become quite used to seeing things but they're, they're, there's more than that it's really about an understanding how does the body work it's a fascinating machine an organic machine which has so many different Facets to it that um, we just can't help be, but want to see inside ourselves, and I think from the from the public that's one of the the big draws. But there are also a number of other draws, which are really about people that have been associated with surgery, and there've been quite a few. I mean, if we start at the very beginning, we talk about James the Fourth of Scotland, who was himself um, interested in surgery and actually carried it out on occasion. Uh, though what happened to his patients is uh, is not generally well known. But also we have people like, in Scotland, um, um, Burke and Hare are the, the two individuals who uh, murdered uh, 16 people to get their bodies so that it could be used for anatomical, anatomical uh, dissection. But a lot of people don't know also that one of the key figures in the history of the college, in a way, was a, a surgeon called Joseph Bell, upon whom which... Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle based his character on Sherlock Holmes. In fact, we have a letter in the collection which confirms that Bell was the model for Sherlock Holmes. So surgeons have been involved in lots of different things, and it, it, we have the specimens, but also these other people that are all um, linked in with history, certainly with the history of Scotland, but also internationally. And I think Scotland internationally has been important important with the development of medicine. So, for example, at the Edinburgh University started in the 18th century and very rapidly became a centre of excellence for medical learning, and that spread throughout the world. So it's a pretty significant place um, for the development of medicine. This, along with the university, probably the two main institutions in Scotland.
1: How are these specimens, or, or a lot of the things here... Collected? Are there things that were donated, or are there things that were well, here from the beginning? In
3: certainly, um, in the late seventeenth, uh, eighteenth century, people operated on other people and took the bits that they um, that weren't going to be any use anymore and put them in a jar because they were fascinated with the condition and also understanding of um, the human body was not as good as it is now. Obviously, um, so. In those days, there was no real permission given. The stuff was just taken and put in jars. And people individually developed collections. And the part of the reason for developing collections was so that you could teach or set yourself up as a teacher. And there was money in it. I mean, you if you had a big collection of um, curiosities, then people um, w- were more likely to come to your lectures because um, they could get a, a fuller understanding of what they might have to do. And it wasn't really until the 20th century that um, there were controls over what you did with the, with the human body. And certainly, I talked about Burke and Hare, but as a result of Burke and Hare's activities, the um, Anatomy Act came into being in 1832 in England, which meant you could no longer just take cadavers and deal with them as you like. So there was rules were rules where it began to be enforced. And certainly in the 20th century, we've had several... Um, bits of legislation that have controlled that so that now the museum is governed by the Human Tissue Act 2006 in Scotland which means we have to take uh, an ethical consideration of how we display our objects as well so it's been a kind of incremental process about how people have collected them and why they've collected them but we are now at a stage where the, the human tissue collection in this college is closed so it stays as it is um, and... As you can see, when you go around, there have been lots of different ways of preserving. There's lots of things preserved in jars, normally in something like formalin, or in the older days it was spirits of wine. But they've been preserved with by injecting them with wax, for example. And there are examples of um, hands and feet which have been injected wax, coloured wax to show the veins or the arteries. And then they've been reduced in in some kind of corrosive substance to leave just the wax network around the the bones, which makes a very beautiful, in a way, preservation. And you also see this with the kidneys and things like that. You actually see the structure. And it really is an amazing thing to see the network of the the human veins and arteries around a, a hand or around a specific limb or organ.
1: No, you mentioned, you brought up Burke and Hare. Yeah. And, um, after Burke was executed, he mm. was publicly dissected, which yeah. is kind of fitting for his crime. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It's, it has a very, I think it's a, it was seen and certainly seen as a punishment. And I think you've got to remember that religion played a very hard, a strong part in people's attitudes and anything that sort of, you know, affected the way your body uh, went to its final resting place was... Particularly worrying, and dissection was was seen, seen to be almost a fate worth an execution in some respect. And I have an interesting little story about um, the famous Scots uh, surgeon John Hunter, whose name is associated with the Hunterian Collection in London. But also, there's a, his brother um, started the Hunterian Collection in Glasgow. But John Hunter um, was fascinated with the human body and was very keen on collecting the remains of various. Either stunted or overgrown individuals, and one particular uh, individual was an Irish giant. He actually approached and asked, to, "Could he have his body after his death?" And then normally, when giants, you know, it's an enlarged or a problem with the growth hormones in the body, he would probably die about, you know, aged twenty odd. And Hunter asked him for if he could buy his body, and the, the gentleman concerned was shocked and horrified. So he asked his friends to bury his body at sea. And uh, he duly died and Hunter came to an arrangement with the with the undertaker to take the body, and they filled the the story is that they filled the what the coffin full of rocks, and the friends dumped the the coffin over the over the side full of rocks. That's the story, but it just demonstrates how concerned people were, were to preserve their body intact after death. I mean, there are lots of books and theories being written on why that that may be, but certain religion played a strong part in it. So it was certainly seen as a punishment, and executed criminals were considered to be fair game, and certainly. Prior to 1832, Edinburgh Town Council would provide the college with uh, normally about a body a year. It was, it was very, very little, and considering the number of people that wanted to teach surgery, it wasn't enough. And therefore, people resorted to other means, and the term resurrection men came to, uh, into use, which is people would go to graveyards at night and steal bodies to s- supply surgeons and Teachers and practitioners with something to um, demonstrate on, so it was a kind of very widely spread practice. I think the the and Hare tragedy really um, meant that once and for all, it, the, uh, a law came on the statute books, which was intended to stop that sort of behaviour. So it, it's a very strong link between religion, death, the the use of the body, and. There's a te- there was a tension between how we understand our body, how we learn about it, and how we acquire the means to do that. And I think that um, w- was always going to be an issue.
1: And do you have a number in terms of, like, how many visitors you get?
3: Yeah, we get about 30,000 visitors a year. Um, you know, it's a bit shocking some of the things you see, here, and then you think, God, you know, that's really, some of the stuff is quite outrageous, but you... Within three or four days, you realise that actually um, that it's all part of the human body. And I think the the thing that struck me is how people have lived with some of these conditions. And, and, and the most shocking one, which is not on display for me, is a almost, what, an entire head in a jar, which is um, unnamed, but was collected in about 1811. And it's a chap who had... Uh, two very very large facial tumours, um, so much so, you know, it looked something akin to the Elephant Man, if uh, your listeners of uh, know who that is, and um, it it is still quite shocking to for people to see. It. And I worked with some artists on a project to to look at that. But what I enjoy, and I think, is the kind of taking of something like that and turning it into something that people then begin to appreciate and. Um, reflect upon and then maybe come back and do something else with it and word goes out and you get other people coming in as a result of that and I think it's that sense of um, influencing uh, people's interest is uh, probably the most satisfying part of this job
1: That lays a good foundation for what the museum's all about Now let's go inside with Jesse Merlin and explore
2: well yeah that's the thing I uh, dr. Hill is a is a brain scientist and, and I have a scene where I do an autopsy on a cadaver and pull a brain out of out of the skull um, and uh, and so the lo- museum is located on Hill square on Hill Place which is just perfect and you come in kind of through a inconspicuous uh, second floor landing on a back doorway and find yourself somewhere between kind of a a hall of horrors and a really fascinating modern museum.
1: Are there some favorite points in this exhibit that you'd like to? There's
2: a lot of things that inspire me. This is really interesting. These early anatomical displays of hand and foot, I think they fill the the blood vessels with mercury and other liquid metals to get them to hold their shape and the whole process of, um, what was the word, maceration, the way they strip the flesh from the bones and Way, the way they preserve that is really help uh, tell, tell us what it is. It's, it's um, Injected and in Varnished Dissection of an Infant by John Barclay, who is I think one of the first directors here, one of the first major collections of comparative anatomy here at the museum. But um, yeah, it's 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 quite uh, uh, you know, quite shocking. It's kind of in a standing, almost uh, proud position and you can see how it's uh, had it's been, been varnished and it's had its different organs prepared and uh, filled with different uh, heavy metals to preserve it for display and and instruction. And, and I think that's one of the things you feel keenly when you come here, is that whether or not they did it voluntarily or they did it intentionally, you know, countless numbers of people have made quite a sacrifice by being included with this collection um, and contributing to the understanding of, of medical students. For hundreds of years and, and hopefully well into the future, I mean it really is it 's the same sense of um, of, uh, of gravitas and and kind of solemn respect you have to have in a in an old cemetery i mean but these are people who really have contributed a lot. This is also something I was describing These are different, um, four different examples of broken leg bones here and broken foot. Uh, that were badly set or not set at all. Um, uh, simple fractures and compound fractures, and you can see the kind of really extreme deformities that came out of it. It's hard to imagine how people would walk just with great pain, uh, those who were able to survive long enough to have their their legs heal. And just something as simple as, as a modern bone setting is something we really take for granted, don't, uh, don't think much about. Well, what I find interesting is just how gruesome the whole history of surgery is until we get to Lister, really, uh, you know, besides a few advances in um, uh, amputation and wound dressing, which was pretty dodgy to begin with, and, uh, and also there's a lot of bloodletting in this country, until they understand the cleaning of wounds, cleaning of instruments, uh, and the basic nature of... Um, of uh, microbes and infectious disease, there's really not a lot to uh, to brag about. I mean, even if you had a, a, a gangrenous uh, infection amputated, you'd still get, at best, a 50-50 chance of survival. So, Well, well um, the
1: other thing I, I thought was interesting, too, is the fact that there were barbers, surgeons.
2: Right, right. Well, but, you know, and the word barber had a different meaning than what we think now. You know, have a tooth pulled, get some trepanning or bloodletting done, have some leeches... Yeah, barber surgeons. It's kind of a frightening idea. Yeah, there's a lot here about military injuries. Yeah, this is the femur with a, a gunshot wound in, in the side of it preserved in alcohol. And you know it's a, a really interesting cross-section. They have uh, similarly preserved faces uh, from the First World War, a lot of preserved war stuff from the Crimean War and other things like that. More stuff over here. You can see entry and exit wounds of, of bullets from Highlander killed at the Battle of Culloden, 1746. Entry and sent exit wounds made by a Hanoverian musket ball. And over here, the whole range of different, uh, different kinds of uh, ordnance that can end up in your body or stuck um. in a bone. This one is really fascinating. It's a bunch of saber, saber um, strikes on the top of a skull of, a, I think, a yeah, French cavalry, cavalryman killed at Waterloo.
1: Can you, like, describe what this skull
2: looks like? Yeah, this is just the top section of a skull of a French cavalryman killed at the Battle of Waterloo, and it has a bunch of angular, fairly deep uh, saber cuts. So, uh, presumably, he was struck, maybe even while on his horse, over the top of the head, and could easily have died from blood loss from these injuries, but... You know, I mean, it's, it's not just the injury that's interesting, it's, the, it's where it falls in the, in the place of history. You see particularly with a lot of the compound fractures and bone injuries that until basic modern techniques in bone setting were understood, um, things would heal in really grotesque and deformed ways. And I think one of the things that's interesting about having all these pathological specimens from the seventeen and 1800s is a lot of these diseases and conditions simply don't exist in the modern world. Uh, so the only way we can study them is with very old specimens. Uh, and and there are some things that they can be proud of here too. This is uh, a fellow here who actually was um, an accomplice. We'll get to the Burke and Hare case, for very famous uh, grave robber and body snatching murder case from I guess the 1820s. One of their accomplices or uh, companions had a very deformed uh, mouth and neck from a burn injury and so they would take casts of a gentleman like this before a surgery to improve his condition and then after. So here you, you see him before and I think somewhere else you can see his improved state. The stuff of probably endless film adaptations and and gory stories is uh, uh, Dr. Robert Knox and uh, and the case of grave robbers and murderers Burke and Hare. Robert Knox actually has quite a connection to this place because he was uh, the first conservator, I guess, of the Berkeley Collection and conservator of the museum here uh, in the 1820s. So he was a lecturer on anatomy and a very famous uh, doctor and scientist. And in this time, they were... Uh, guys in his profession were constantly in need of fresh specimens, kind of like Herbert West and Reanimator, not for experiments bringing the dead back to life, but for dissection anatomical lectures. And it was a largely unregulated practice of where they would get the bodies from, and there was a a rather high premium paid uh, for fresh bodies. So barring the fairly irregular execution of a young healthy specimen, when they'd be guaranteed the body, Uh, there was a very frequent need for it. And uh, Dr. Knox was never directly implicated himself, though he was tarnished by the scandal that uh, two men who had been providing him with bodies were not only robbing graves, but they were actually murdering people and bringing them in uh, fresh and unmarked, uh, probably smothering them so it would be particularly obvious that they'd been murdered. And this went on for quite a while until they were caught. Um, Hare went Queen's evidence against Burke, and Burke was... um, was hanged for the crime. And we have the death mask uh, casting of Mr. Burke here. You can see the injury on his neck very clearly. And among the other gruesome parts of this collection is a pocketbook supposedly made from his skin. Uh, Feeling against these men was very high. It's hard to imagine that one of them was actually allowed off for uh, turning Queen's evidence. But um, this kind of led to the downfall of, of Dr. Knox. He was never criminally tried himself but he lost the position and it really brought a lot of shame to the occupation and, and to the to the hall here and I think it was about 1832 they had to bring in an act strictly regulating the, um, the sourcing of dead bodies. Uh, one thing that's worth mentioning is if you go to Greyfriars Cemetery here in Edinburgh you see uh, several examples of things I've never seen in the United States. I don't know if really if they exist anywhere called mort safes, which are iron cages placed over, over graves to prevent um, body snatching. People were so worried about it, they would place over a tomb or a small crypt an actual locked, uh, grilled iron cage on top of it.
1: And one other thing I was curious, you, I don't know if you looked into it or if you could just mention it, uh, but it points out that he was publicly dissected. Which seems
2: yeah, there's kind of a, a full circle there, um, uh, yeah, you just you can imagine the level of prurient interest that went around that uh, that went that public dissection. I don't know the details of it. I wonder if it was just restricted to medical students or families of the victims, kind of like watching a modern execution. Uh, you can see a contemporary print showing his hanging and, and how how many people were there watching and how closely uh, closely followed it was.
1: That seems like a kind of a fitting end for him, considering what he did.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it really is the it's the kind of the stuff of legend here. It really is kind of almost like Disneyland or uh, Mr. Lincoln talks about America here. They've got different uh, wax figures dressed in period costumes in their um, the reconstructed offices of the famous doctors here. We have Robert Knox here in a rather dashing. Uh, purple Regency-era coat um, which is accurate down to his sideburns and his cataract and it has a lot of, to the modern eye, rather grisly uh, parts of his collection here. I mean simple stuff like his violin, a deformed skeleton, a kind of half-dissected and and varnished child skeleton in a case, um, and another deformed skeleton over there.
1: Not what you see in a modern doctor's office?
2: Though why I can't tell, oh, here, this, I think this is interesting. The gentleman, I believe, is this what I'm thinking? The, the, the accomplice to the Birkenhair crimes, oh. that's him. That's his deformed face, I think. So they have a wax casting of his deformed face and then they actually have his skull here, I think. Yeah, John Brogan, it was the, one of the accomplices of the murders. And uh, I guess they have Burke's skeletons somewhere else nearby. This is interesting. As we get into the modern era, it gets uh, a lot more impressive. There's a lot more to be proud of, particularly with things like the development of uh, anesthesia. And they have a lot of the original devices, which were some of the first used. Something that almost looks like a old-fashioned oil lamp combined with an asthma inhaler. was almost like a hookah that um, that you would breathe through of compression for removing the sensation, um, probably mostly prior to amputation, rather grisly obstetrical forceps here.
1: Yeah, some of this stuff actually looks like torture tools.
2: Yeah, this is a very um, well-preserved alcohol specimen of a compound fracture of the leg and you can see um, I think that was amputated um, due to gangrene uh, severe comminuted compound fracture with the tibia and fibula both broken in two places oh this is interesting this is the very beginning of antiseptic technique where they talk about carbolic acid That it's funny Lister was um, I think he was u- involved with using it to clean out the sewers and it was where he had the first had the idea for, uh, for dressing wounds and sterilizing instruments. Uh, immediately had a huge increase in the survival rate of his patients. Yeah, the Lister exhibition is probably even bigger than the, uh, the Conan Doyle exhibition here, in terms of something they're really proud of. Here we have Dr. Lister in some of his actual clothes, kind of like Madame Tussauds here, with a, a photograph of one of his operations in the background. And uh, this is an early, I think, cauterizing instrument for uh, th- that he actually used to, to sterilize his his surgical tools. This is an actual bench from his infirmary that they allow you to sit on here. So I mean, it really is living history. More of his clothes here. I love 19th century frock coats. beautifully preserved stuff. And then all of the gold medals and and silver trowels he won. They were very they were very happy with him. If you think about it, he probably saved more lives um, from his discoveries than, God, probably most doctors throughout history. This is particularly interesting to me, playing Dr. Hill um, as a brain scientist, because this is a, a cross section of a brain where they operated on the patient. Uh, in 1884, yeah, this is one of Lister's unsuccessful operations. He opened the skull to try and relieve an abscess, and you can see the the large, probably walnut-sized abscess here in the brain. And it was it looked like it was going to be a, a success because he did gain some of his eyesight back and and seemed to recover. But um, I mean, God, the fact that they would even attempt open brain surgery in the 1880s is is pretty amazing. Uh, he did die about ten days after the operation, but they have the Inflamed and abscessed part of his brain preserved here. Yeah, and this is where we start to get to the more gruesome preserved specimens here, like a gangrenous foot, a lot of a lot of things that were preserved after amputation. Yeah, fibroadenoma of the breast. Really, things you just, uh, as a layperson, you're never going to see inside this kind of a condition or inside these kind of wounds, mm. unless you're looking at uh, pictures on the internet. If you, you know, are, are morbid or. Or uh, <laughs> gruesomely inclined, but these are really things as old as they are presented in an educational way for serious students and, uh, and lay people alike. We're about to enter the pathology hall, which is where we get the really, really juicy stuff, so to speak. I, lo- I was mentioning earlier the hink sanitas, which is Latin for for from here health. The sigil or medallion or escutcheon or whatever you call it the the symbol of the university is really beautiful and full of meaning Uh, and it starts with a little scroll at the top that says "Hinc Sanitas and has the sun kind of dispelling the clouds of ignorance and above it we have
0: uh,
2: we have um, uh, the knight's helmet which I think is related to the royal charter and by the side of it we have uh, Aesculapius with his staff with the snake, which I think is the the source of the doctor's caduceus, you know, the double snake with the staff that you see doctors wear even now. So Aesculapius, of Greek myth. Over on the right we have Hippocrates, looking very austere, uh, reading his book. And then all these details here, we have the St. Andrew's cross with the crown of the thistle, which is a sign of Scottish royalty, uh, the Scottish charter, all the different grisly instruments of the... Um, of the trade of surgery, a hand with an eyeball in it pointing down from a cloud, which is great. This is kind of the symbolism of this, the, the seeing hand of the surgeon, then a body on his side and underneath that the castle, which represents the city of Edinburgh. And I think at the bottom it's a bunch of medicinal herbs and roots. Um, so so usually you're going to see this kind of a symbol, you know, no bigger than the size of a quarter, but it's absolutely full of meaning. And, and uh, yeah, and over here we have a preserved snake and then a couple of couple of Greek-style clubs with the, the snakes of Aesculapius. Um, and I gather in the past they used to have quite a collection of preserved animal specimens, which were all taken away because they're not really used um, in the post-Darwin era. comparative anatomy between animals and, and human beings is less instructive, I gather. Uh, but they do have a few things left. There's a gigantic elephant skull. As you come down the stairs, it's worth a look. So um, so here we get the more preserved stuff, and it starts to describe the way they preserve things at the time. Tissue preservation with mercury, uh, by injections with the blood vessels, really, you end up with something very colorful and very very vibrant looking. The problem with preserving tissue and alcohol is that uh, certainly after 100 years, most of the, the pigment is leached out uh, just by the, you know nature of the fluid. But I mean, here's something as as delicate as like um, lymph vessels, can be preserved through mercury injection, and hold their shape, even a hundred years le- later. Acrylic, cor- oh yeah, this is more modern. Acrylic corrosion. Yes, yeah, so they inject uh, the blood vessels of a normal kidney with colored acrylic to show the circulation. It's uh, it's more modern and and very. Very colorful, here. this I think is really quite a r- remarkable this is uh what here is that the right hand and wrist dissected to show anatomy of tendons and blood vessels preserved with uh, with wax actually, and you can really get a sense of the way the hand articulates and then some the older way of preserving organs is uh, through. Like I say, dry specimen preservation with, um, you know, injection and drying and varnishing. Oh okay, yeah, here we have another, um, about circa 1800 child skeleton. And I, I always wonder how they, they settle the the poses for these, these poor little guys. Because he almost seems to be standing with his arms up in the air and his torso open. It's very expressive. Like a little fellow like this never had a chance at life, but in a strange way, has immortality here as a as a teaching model. So not to be vulgar about it, uh, but as I said earlier, uh, this is as we enter the pathology hall here. It's is Doctor Hills classroom and Hannibal Lecter's kitchen. And you know, I'm playing a neuroscientist now, and I'm playing Hannibal Lecter in a month uh, in another musical. So it all ties together for me. It's kind of a theme here. Here we have a series of wax models of fetal development, uh, and some even like, oversized models showing the development and and um, uh, kind of natural division of of the egg, m- much uh, enlarged. Um, and it's very hands-on. They have a lot of preserved slides that you're actually able to to examine through a microscope yourself. Yeah, there's quite a few cases here of uh, tools for amputation which are really grisly. when you think that, particularly the 1700 stuff, they really don't have anything approaching a modern anesthetic. And at best they can just try and um, use a tourniquet to cut off the blood flow and hold you down and put something between your teeth and just saw away as quickly as possible. I mean, some of these things just look like woodworking. Uh, You know, a a handsaw. The shape of some of the knives is something you really never see for anything except amputation. A lot of very grisly, colored diagrams here of the time. This is pretty extraordinary. This is a dissection of of an entire adult head from the mid-19th century, and it's um, it's been designed in a glass case kind of lacquered and varnished and prepared with the different waxes and, and mercury injections to show the distribution of facial nerves um, which is actually a very interesting way to look at it you can really see, you know, they've, they're color-coded, the white the white uh, nerves are the um, are, are the main nerves and the smaller branches are colored yellow and it uh, I forget where it happens, but there's a description here about you know how the understanding of nerves develops once they understand the difference between you know the central and autonomic nervous systems, how different parts of your body are controlled by different nervous systems. Um, I think besides the Lister, their most famous native son here in medicine is of course Conan Doyle, who actually went to university here, and his. Uh, instructor Joseph Bell, he w- was principally the, the, the model for Sherlock Holmes. I mean, there's a case to be made that there are a few other models too, but, but the way Dr. Bell trained his students to look for a disease as you would recognize the face of a friend in a crowd and be able to recognize him instantly in the way he would assess people you know just on first look down to their occupation and their age and where they've lived and the different diseases they've had really ties in with uh with sherlock holmes and there's a whole exhibition here and a little video of, of uh conan doyle from the late 20s talking about it here we are back uh in dr hill's territory with uh, cross sections of uh have skulls with preserved uh, fractures and abscesses and um, different blood clots in the brain sometimes there's a piece of the skull preserved in alcohol sometimes a, cr- a whole cross-section of the, of the, of the organ itself so you can just see how severe a lot of these uh, head injuries were and in, in the days before any kind of meaningful um, Brain surgery. All they could do was examine it after someone was dead. You know, preserve it uh, for analysis. And, I mean, just the size of this extradural hematoma on this um, on this preserved brain here in, in yellow fluid. God, uh, the hematoma is probably the size of a of a pear.
1: And some of these have um, like the holes drilled. That
2: you can see the evidence of the of the surgery. Of the surgery and the healing, and the, yeah. Different evidence of a hematoma inside the brain. Evidence of a laceration. Um, a cut through the skull. Uh, hernia in the brain. God, that's an unpleasant thought. Um, and then, of course, uh, something that. Again, is not, you know. One of the things I love about this museum is that they present the history of surgery very, very honestly and very openly, and they don't really pussyfoot around the more unpleasant or um, embarrassing parts of the history. I mean, they have um, quite a few trepanning drills here on display, and um, a fractured a fractured skull here with two holes drilled for trepanning. See. Uh, I guess Japan is still pre- performed for certain kind of operations, but they'd use a power drill now. But, uh, yeah, what does it say here? Although this procedure may seem to be a dramatic modern response to relieve raised int- intracranial pressure, there is evidence from archaeological remains that prehistoric people also perform such procedures. Well, That's true. It doesn't necessarily mean it's sensible. Oh, my God, just the size of these, these bladder and kidney stones is really unpleasant. Some are the size of... Um, uh, everything from cherry pits up to uh, large, large stones you'd find on the beach. This is calculus from the bladder. That's the size of about a, a billiard ball, and it's um, there's a whole display here on the the treatment and removal of bladder and kidney stones, bladder calculi, which uh, which is you know is something that's treatable now but caused terrible suffering and pain and infection and death and a lot of you know people we remember now mostly great creative minds of the 19th century many of them were, were felled by something as small as a kidney stone yeah this is interesting skeleton of a woman who underwent an early cesarean section this is a fully articulated it's skeleton and it demonstrates the condition osteomalacia yeah boy it's has a really extreme uh, deformity of the rib cage. It's almost it's almost squeezed, so the the proportions are inverted, where it's it's th- um, thicker, pointing from the center of the back out toward the front, and squeezed and pinched between the arms. Um, a lot of these uh, deformities of the bone are uh, caused by. Uh, Gross nutritional deficiency—that's better understood now. So you really aren't going to see these. Certainly in the developing world, uh, it would be extremely rare. But um, but but this woman actually underwent a successful uh, cesarean section. Uh, the, the, the child survived, but she she died afterwards. So I guess that means it isn't—it wasn't entirely successful. God, look at that picture of this. Here's an illustration of an ovarian cystadenoma. 1872, and uh, it shows a woman with a, a benign tumor from her ovary It's grown to about three, two or three times the size of her entire body. And some of this stuff is really quite, um, quite shocking. And the heart stuff is pretty remarkable. They have preserved aneurysms, preserved arterial aneurysms, um, All sorts of different uh, aortas in various states of preservation. You you can see if they've been set in a a kind of an acrylic block, they have a lot of color. If they're still in the liquid, most of it's gotten leached out. Um, But it's one of the things when you come here, you really have to check the schedule because the pathology hall is still used for exams. I mean, it really is part of of the... um, of the schooling of all of the students here at the university. Yeah, here we have some uniforms of different uh, casualties of the Crimean War or something. Let's walk down here. Okay. Yeah, the, um, the part here about military surgery is fascinating because, in a sense, Military service was a great equalizer uh, in a time where society was even more stratified and class-divided than it is now. Almost always in times of war, men from all classes had to, had to serve, and even if you were in the officer class, it was no guarantee you weren't going to have some gruesome battlefield injury. So there was this, uh, the, the value of surgeons on the battlefield was immense, and your chances of survival from even what we would now think of as a very simple injury were pretty, pretty slim. If uh, if there was any th- chance of infection, here we have a few examples of musket balls preserved uh, in amputated legs. Here's a, a skull with a very deep saber cut from the Battle of the Pyramids in 1798. Quite a few uh, fractured bones with with the pieces of. of uh, a musket ball and other ordnance from the battle of waterloo uh, a skull with a a musket ball entry and an exit wound
1: it's pretty impressive that they were conscientious enough to save a lot of this
2: yeah yeah well and and something that you don't see there's a separate gallery of the paintings but they have also you know especially in the era before photography they have a large collection of uh, rather depressing paintings of the progression of wounds and infections um, on the battlefield here, um, for instructive purposes. I mean, this is not the kind of art anybody would uh, want to hang in their home. And a lot of it, there's a whole story behind it, like this musket ball wound, of this this uh, soldier's upper arm and his humorous, it says in this sketch, in the, the apparently trifling nature of the wound is represented in this sketch in oil, the apparently trifling nature of the wound is represented. Though such a wound, however, the f- through such a wound, however, the finger can be introduced. And just think, doctors were sticking their fingers in wounds without washing their hands. I mean, and they're writing about it, right? So, through such a wound, however, the finger can be introduced. And if the bone be shattered, and in this instance, jagged points of the fragments will be felt all around, uh, the observation made to be is that. Uh, the bone bone is, uh, you know, if the bone bone is broken, we don't have to amputate, but when it's a a compound fracture and fragments are sticking through the skin, uh, it's a candidate for amputation, and I'm pretty sure this guy did have his entire arm amputated later. Yeah, look at this, catching a little of the state of arm of an officer two years after a gunshot fracture, and the poor man still has his arm, but he's suffering with terrible suppurating infections. Uh, I guess this is about 1820s. It's from uh, the Battle of Kuranda. Here's a beautiful collection of, uh, you know, hand uh, hand decorated porcelain dishes that were all used for bloodletting. So, uh, there's a lot of that, a lot of that in the history of the city. Well, oh, here's some interesting stuff about uh, army and naval service. This is pretty wild down here. This is a preserved tattooed chest of a, of a sailor. I'm trying to remember if it says exactly where he's from, but it looks like a, God, it might be even a 17th century sailing vessel with snakes and birds and a beautifully articulated uh, and designed ship on it. And the color and pigment is really in quite good repair, quite good uh, preservation. Yeah, this is this is pretty shocking. This is a rather extensive skull wound of a, of a gunshot at Waterloo, which, if you can believe it, the patient survived this injury for many years, and it looks like there's a, a chunk of of bone, about the size of an apple, removed from the upper forehead through to the top of the scalp. So this man, I mean, and it's it's very jagged. So this. Poor fellow was going through life with a large hollowness skull for, for quite a while. It's amazing what a human being can survive. I almost feel embarrassed to comment on this stuff because I, I just feel like I'm going to expose my ignorance. I'm really only a, a layman, and I won't say enthusiast, but just someone who's you know interested in the history of of medicine and particularly medical field practice and, and, and military service. Yeah, here we get to more modern kinds of injuries, some, some rather gruesome examples of, um, of amputated feet suffering from trench foot and gangrene. Really kind of interesting cross-sections of, of really cleanly preserved lungs in liquid um, with still a lot of color, suffering from uh, gas gangrene, a kind of uh, a kind of injury, uh, just a horrible, lingering injury to the lungs caused by mustard gas. This is one of the most, I think, moving uh, specimens here. Is a, a gunshot wound which entered the skull through a wound on the left side of the nose, and. Um, a large piece of the man's face has been preserved. Um, and you can really get a sense of the character of the man because it, um, I mean, it's, he still has his mustache and eyebrows and eyelashes and the, the pigment of his skin. It's uh, about a rectangular sized section of the face from above the eyes to just below the lower upper, upper lip. And it's stitched, but it shows the, the entry of a of a a terminal wound through his nose. Yeah, and and this is something you see a lot here, donor unknown, which is a polite way of saying, I mean, who knows if this man had any intention of, of giving up his body for medical science, but it's a pretty profound, profound contribution. And one that you can see, even if you can't come here, the catalog that they sell, which is the, you know, the Surgeon's Hall history, which is an overview of the history of the hall with a lot of pictures of their more um, unique and or historically significant specimens uh, is is definitely worth owning. Yeah, here's a rather shocking piece of the skull from a World War I. God, that's got to be a, a shell wound. Um, no, it says gunshot. It's a large gunshot wound that went through the top of the skull and caused, I'm sure, terrible swelling and then they had to do trepanation. So, I mean, the gunshot wound is about the size of a silver dollar and, um, or maybe that gigantic hole is the gunshot wound and the trepanation is the smaller hole. It's kinda hard to tell. But a lot of the, the skin and even the hair on the scalp is preserved. Yeah, the, the field surgical sets for the First World War are pretty, pretty remarkable, and in a lot of ways, it's not that different from surgical tools today. Um, though how they would have kept them sterile and cauterized, I, I can't imagine, especially in such grim conditions. Anterior portions of a cerebral hemisphere is a preserved brain with a severe gunshot wound uh, from the First World War, a man who died a couple of days after the wound, but you can actually see preserved... In the the path of the bullet, chunks of bone that had become lodged in his brain caused bleeding. Pretty, pretty vivid, and still full of color. And a lot of these um, preserved wounds uh, here from the First World War show very clearly the nature of of the wound. There's a put an entire preserved stomach here in liquid that has a a long white rod showing the entry and exit of the bullet. That presumably Contributed to a, a fatal wound. We have a kidney here; it's um, preserved in color, but but um, black with uh, with uh, preserved hemorrhage. This is an interesting example of a, of a cross section of a lower leg showing gas, the effect of gas gangrene on um, on tissue, nowhere near the lungs, and uh, it's a rather remarkable effect on the whole body. Yeah, this skull here is shows pretty clearly the effect of a high explosive shell, which is really a very different kind of wound than, a, than an entry of a, a, of a bullet. It's almost like someone set off an explosion right by the skull. Very jagged.
1: Why don't you explain um, what you're seeing on the third floor?
2: Well, by the way, the gallery here is quite beautiful. Um, uh, example of, gosh, what is this, like uh, Georgian architecture. It's uh, beautiful skylights, and it has little alcoves with different different uh, themes for medical display, but the second floor, or what I guess they would call the first floor here, is um, absolutely just crammed full of cases of pathological specimens. A lot of the jars don't even have lids, um, and that's not open to the public. It's a, a whole... Uh, a whole, vast bulk of the collection that I think is very specifically used for, for medical students. And uh, hopefully you'll get to get a look up there tomorrow because they don't really let people up there, it's very special. An interesting case here that has the growth of the fetal skeleton and it has the fetus through all the different stages of development. And it's funny, I think it kind of shows the bias of the era I'm not sure when most of these specimens are dated from, but they're all articulated and standing. And of course, you, you know, understanding the way fetuses develop, that's not the way they would look. I mean, if they were, if they were either miscarried or aborted or however, um, you know, or stillborn, I mean, you were not going to see a fetus in a standing position. Um, but I think it kind of shows the prejudice at the time as we like to see our skeletons looking the way we look. Yeah, this collection of skulls here is quite remarkable for the um, the deformities and the I think some genetic disorders, but particularly um, disorders related to extreme malnutrition, things you just very very rarely see now. I think some hydrocephalous skulls, where the the cranium is almost looks inflated like a balloon to, I'd say, three, four, five, six, seven times its normal size. Um, and then some, some of the more um, proud parts of their, I guess, early surgical history is pre- and post-operative facial casts in wax and plaster of a facial tumor by Dr. Liston, oh, he's, yeah, I mean, the the life stories of a lot of the doctors involved with this place are quite remarkable. He was really popular and quite brilliant. But figure in 1834, this facial tumor that has swollen on the side of this woman's face to almost the entire size of her face. I mean, it's quite close, it's really extreme. A simple injury that just swelled into a, a grotesque, oversized tumor he successfully removed from her. Um, and then we have the, ca- the, the the casting to the right of her face post-surgery as it heals, plus a, a separated cast of the tumor, which is pretty shocking. I mean, it's bigger than her brain. Though I shouldn't get too excited about it, because it doesn't say how long she survived after the operation. Oh, this is interesting. Some of the collections that have come... here, This is the, the Alcock collection. just. Uh, a number of preserved pieces of amputated legs, mostly with the, the the musket balls actually still stuck in the bone, either lodged in there or a preserved in position, really showing the nature of the injury. And you can see the various attempts of the bone to heal itself uh, before you know, amputation was was called for. A lot of musket ball injuries and pieces of preserved skull. Some evidence of trepanning holes. One of the most um, one of the most interesting pieces of of, of forensic uh, pathology here is a preserved series of specimens from a murder case. And unfortunately, they pulled down the description, but it's in the printed catalog. Uh, and it was a man who stabbed his wife and killed her. He stabbed her in the heart with a shoemaker's knife and they have different pieces of it, presumably used in the trial before they were donated and preserved here, but they have the punctured skin, a punctured tissue, the actual knife used to commit the murder, and then the preserved punctured heart. So it, re- I mean, again, it's not exactly the right expression, but it is a form of living history. You can see um, you know, the criminal act and then it's uh, the, the different way it was examined and preserved in use for the trial, and then the way it's been preserved for a less anatomical display, but to show the way um, forensic, you know, particularly the early days of forensic pathology. You no, know, it really is, um, it, it's emotional being here. You know, it is an amazing collection. It's not that popular a museum. It's a fairly inexpensive museum. It's only £5 to come visit. But you really are overwhelmed with a sense of just not just the sacrifice but just the individual tragedy of a lot of the people on display here. Because for most of human history and most of the 500 years that there's been a you know, College of Surgeons, a simple injury a simple infection could kill you or disfigure you or cause you to suffer just terribly so you know we of the late 20th and early 21st century so much of what we take for granted is is just a blip in the in the scale of human history and Just the ability to have a wound dressed the ability to have something uh, you know a broken bone or a, a, a cut on the skin not end up costing you a limb or, a, or, or your life. Also, I, I should say the, the really, I mean, I, I don't say lightly, but the gruesome selection of, of preserved cross-sections of different cancers. Uh, of all different parts of the body is the most cautionary thing I've ever seen. As an ex-smoker I don't think I could ever pick up a cigarette again. I I mean it's one thing looking at a picture on a pack of cigarettes but actually seeing large pieces of preserved cancer will make you think twice. It's funny, you know, visiting here is an emotional experience and and for the characters I play it isn't, you know. For Dr. Hill as a neurosurgeon and autopsy performer, he might as well be sawing a piece of wood in half. He absolutely has no nostalgia or feeling for a dead body. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily because he's sociopathic, though he is. I think people who work with the dead, there must be a level of detachment you form at a certain point. You know, Stuart Gordon, the director of the of the musical, talks about spending time with the coroner in the county morgue preparing for the movie and just the... the really kind of almost to an outsider demented sense of humor that coroners and morticians have to develop uh, he says they're very happy to see people they don't get a lot of people coming to visit them so they love having visitors and they're really really pretty jocular and, and um, lighthearted about what they do and and I suppose in a sense you, you, you'd have to be um, I mean gosh you read, a bit, you read in the in the catalog of the Surgeon's Museum, um, it's a beautiful catalog because it's not just the history and it's not just a bunch of, of, uh, of gory pictures. It's poetry, uh, modern and historic poetry on the subject of medicine and, you know, reflections of students in a time gone by and modern students. And, and one of the students writes as recently as the early 80s. In your basic anatomy class, they're passing around a brain without gloves. And you're sticking your fingers in it and feeling it, and that's the way they dealt with dead bodies, uh, which in the age of modern disease is really hard to believe. Um, I'm sure they still do pass out brains, though. I think you probably have to wear some kind of gear to handle them. But um,
1: yeah. Thanks for listening to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Jesse Merlin can be seen later this month in the new film, Helen Keller vs. Night Wolves, a horror film designed to be bad by the maestro of modern bad cinema, Ross Patterson. The film will be streaming live on Halloween on Dread Central, so check it out. Merlin also played werewolf Hitler for Patterson in FDR, American Badass. And keep alert for Reanimator the Musical because it has a way of, well, reanimating. Remember to check back each Friday in October for a horror-themed edition of the Cinema Junkie podcast. You can also go back and check out last week's episode featuring Clive Barker. Coming up will be a discussion of psychology and horror with The Babadook, a behind-the-scenes look at Reanimator the Musical, and an audio essay on the first films that scared people. So till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and help us out by leaving a review. The podcast is only a few months old, and we rely on your word of mouth to help us build a larger audience. Thanks again for listening.